I've said it once, I've said it a million times. There is no one way to break into a job in Hollywood. Everybody's path is different, even if they end up in the same job or position in the end. In any business, not just TV and film, the people who populate it come and go in cycles. This isn't something you'll notice if you're just starting out, but if, like me, you've spent a lot of years working in the industry you're in, you'll be witness to the cyclical nature of things as people retire and move on, making room for the next generation of workers. This turnover is common, and when you've got some experience under your belt, you can usually spot the folks ready to take the step out from a lower position into the light of more of a leadership or department head role. The cinematographer, also known as the director of photography, is a prime example of just that, in that it's one of those jobs you can aspire to and reach through different paths. Sitting here now, I can think of a bunch of gaffers I feel are ready to move up and take on the cinematographer role, and I can think of some camera operators who are just as ready to move up. Different skill set, based on their career paths to date, but just as qualified as the other. My guest today on Call Time is cinematographer Wayne Kennan. Wayne's another one of those super talented people I love to surround myself with because, frankly, he makes me look really good. But making me look good isn't what I'm trying to do when I bring him onto one of my shows. It's all about is making the show look good. And Wayne's a master at that with a track record to prove it. His credits include a lot of successful TV shows you'll be familiar with. Shows like Newhart, Uncle Buck, The Single Guy, Just Shoot Me, Seinfeld, News Radio, King of Queens, iCarly, Dads, Rules of Engagement, Dr. Ken, The Thundermans, Night Squad, and most recently, One Day at a Time. Whether you're looking to have a career as a cinematographer, if you just have an interest in what one does, you're in for a real treat, because as they say, Wayne has been there, done that. Don't go anywhere. After the break, we'll hear all about Wayne's journey to become a cinematographer, what his job's all about, and what someone who might be considering it would have to do to break in. No more messing around. Let's get to it. This is your call time. Back in a sec. Looky here, this is Wayne Kennan joining me here on Call Time. Wayne, thanks so much for joining me. My pleasure, Bruce. First thing I want to know is where did you grow up? I grew up in Whittier, California. I've been there. I've heard of it. Where did you go to school? I assume you're talking about college. I went to San Diego State, mainly because they had a film and television uh, department. They do. They actually have a good one there. I know a couple people that have gone there for that. Um, Is that what drew you to it? Obviously, seems like it did. Did you have have family involved in the industry at all that made you kind of turn that direction? None whatsoever. I remember I went to a uh, high school counseling at the end of your senior year. They counsel you and he says, well, you can be an engineer, a teacher, I think, or a businessman. And I just, <laughs> I walked out of there so depressed. Are, I don't want to do that. That's a pretty general term, businessman. That could, that could <laughs> cover a lot of things. Um, so you ended up in camera, obviously, being a director of photography. Mm-hmm. How did you end up in that, uh, in that? That was the most fun for me when I worked on student projects was uh, lighting and framing and, and making sure everything's going to work. And it just was pure fun for me. I enjoyed it. And I decided that I'd done all these crappy jobs my whole life just to make money, just to make money. And I wanted to have fun making money. And it worked. That's great. It worked. Did you do much photography, like still photography, just on your own as a sideline, you know, I growing did. up? I did. I, I uh, turned my mom's uh, bathroom, my parents' bathroom, which had no windows, 
into a dark room for about, I had lasted about two or three months and then I was thrown out uh, after staining the tile with chemicals and stuff. So that stuff smells too. <laughs> I had a step grandfather who was a still photography, he was a portrait artist and um, back in Ohio. And he used to let me into the dark room at his studio, which was like growing up as a little kid, it was the best thing ever sit in the dark and play with plastic and stuff like that and chemicals. That's how I got drawn to it too, to some degree. So tell me, uh, to those who don't know exactly what a director of photography is, because it goes by a lot of different names I've seen. Some people just refer to that person as a cameraman or a camera person. Some people look at it as a lighting designer. Why don't we hear it from your mouth? I think that it, to be succinct, the cinematographer, director of photography, whatever you want to call them, is responsible for what you see. Turn the sound down and what you see is what that job entails and is the so outcome of doing that. In conjunction with and overseeing other departments like lighting and grip and and also working in conjunction with the art department and stuff Absolutely. like that. Absolutely, yes. Did you ever have any desire to be in any of those departments or did you just, I mean, you started out in camera, obviously, but did you ever get enticed in other directions as you went or did you just learn to appreciate them as you went? Um, I just learned to appreciate it and, and I, I was never interested in doing anything. Once I realized what camera was and worked in the business for a while, I, uh, I, um, I knew what I wanted to do. I knew where I wanted to be, and that was the guy with the light meter in his hand, you know? Yeah, and then there are lots of different paths to get there. Let's talk about your path. Like, coming out of San Diego State, did you do any internships before you had graduated or when you graduated? Once you got out, what was your first job that you can recall? Well, my, you know, my internship at San Diego State was actually with – there's a lot of aerospace down there in those days, and, and uh, I think there probably still is high-tech now. And I had a internship at General Dynamics, which was interesting. Uh, the only thing about it was, you know, after doing uh, what the, it's what they call instrumentation as a cinematography. It's, you know, cameras that run at 13,000 frames and uh, stuff like that. Um, you know, high speed stuff of solid rocket fuel engines burning, you know, and, you know, you do about three or four of those and you're ready to move on. And it, it, what happened for me during that time, the, the cinematographers union was very closed uh, in those days. And there was no, there was really no way to get in unless you were somebody's son or daughter. Enough lawsuits were filed that they quietly opened it up for two months or three months, I think, to anybody who could bring in the right paperwork and everything. And somehow I made it in during that time. What was your first job? Was it in the camera department? Was it something else? What, what happened was I, while I was in San Diego, after I, I left General Dynamics, or it may have been before, I, I don't remember. I worked on this. Uh, yeah, it was before General Dynamics. Uh, I worked on a, uh, a, a very low budget uh, kind of a documentary about a feature length documentary called Run for Blue, which never was released. But it got me my days on paper that I used to get in. And uh, your 30 days? Yeah, my 30 or 60 day or whatever it was. And so uh, the, the problem uh, that came up was I didn't know anybody. And I was fortunate enough that the, um, the studio system was still in 
you know, still a main part of every every lot, not in the acting business, because nobody would sign exclusives there. But in other words, if I called, if I needed an, uh, as a director of photography, if I needed a second operator tomorrow on my show, I didn't get to pick. I called the camera department and they sent me somebody. They sent you who they wanted to send you. You could not ask for someone. I, I remember those days, actually. I worked at Warner Brothers, well, Lorimar, which became Warner Brothers eventually. And, I, and Warner Brothers had a big camera department in those days. Yeah, and, all the studios did. And I actually was offered, believe it or not, uh, little known facts in my career, I was offered the position of running the camera department at Warner Brothers. Wow. And turned it down. I decided I wanted to stay in production. And, you know, I, I love camera work. I love photography as a whole. But at that moment in my life, I just decided to go left instead of right, I guess, or right instead of left, depending on your point of view, and um, and turned it down. And I would have come out of the department ultimately as a second AC, a second assistant cameraman, and I would have had a great amount of experience. They also, they dealt with the crew, as I remember, and also in Equipment ordering, film ordering, which was a big deal back then, and stocking that up for all the shows. Right. And what I was going to say about that is I my paperwork on on that documentary, I worked as a camera operator. And wow. uh, so the paperwork got all sent in and everything. And, and I was on the roster as a camera operator. And I'm thinking, no one's going to hire me to do that. And I drove straight to the producer's house. He lived in Poway. And I was up in Hollywood. And we got to change this to, to a second assistant. I'll never get a job as an operator. And he looked at me and said, you're an idiot. It'll take you 10 years to get to where you are right now. You don't have a family. You don't have any big expenses. Do it. Don't do this. And it was the best advice I ever got. I learned that all I had to do was go to the, um, uh, try, you know, get in each lot in those days. There weren't any badges or anything. You just showed up and said, I'm a courier or whatever. And they let you in. <laughs> and uh, so I went to all the camera departments and uh, made friends with the secretaries because that's who makes the phone calls in the afternoon for the next day. And uh, finally got a, a day call on Battlestar Galactica. Back That was the one back in the, the, the 70s. Yeah, I remember that. as an operator. As a, as B camera operator, fantastic. And then it was a couple months went by, and I got put on another show, uh, a Paramount show, uh, and for four days. And then the Paramount guy really liked me. His name was Dave Foreman, and you know all these guys. Every camera department was like a little Panavision. They had everybody, you know, everybody that was in that department was either a, a lens person, a camera movement person, or somebody who knew how to fix whatever because they all owned their own equipment. Right. Uh, anyways, I was at Paramount and it was when Gary Marshall had Laverne and Shirley and Happy Days and the camera department guy says, okay, Wayne, here's what I want you to do. I want you to come and I want you to sit in the audience for four days, two days on Laverne and Shirley, two days on uh, Happy Days. And then I swear to God, this is the, God's truth. I was living at the beach in a really cheap place in those days in Del Mar. Yep. And I, I, my buddy came over to go surfing and I said, okay, uh, listen, I'll go over and this is my last 20 bucks. I'm going to go buy a six pack. <laughs> I went over, there's a the little market just down the street, came back, walked in with the six pack, phone rang. The rest was history. I got a job on a multi-camera show and never looked back. Do you know which one that was? <laughs> oh, yeah. It was called Struck by Lightning. Jack Elam and a guy named Jeff, and I can't remember his last name. But uh, the Jeff guy went on to become a uh, executive producer of uh, Ali McGraw. I ran into him one time. I said, hey, I work with you. 
And he said, well, I said, what are you doing now? He says, well, I'm an executive producer of Alan McGraw. Wow. That worked out well. That worked out well. You know, it's, it's interesting. One of the things that I talk about on the show a lot is about how, you know, when I get asked by kids and whoever how to get into the business in whatever position, um, there's no one answer, you know. And that's what I think is so attractive about talking to people like you is that um, everybody has their own journey, their own story to tell. And in your position, what you've just described is sort of a more a classic way to become a cinematographer, um, at least in the multi-camera world in particular. Um, another way is through lighting. You know, I know a lot of people have come up through lighting. And, and sometimes I've found it's confusing when you're talking talking to some cinematographers and that some are very camera oriented and others are just very lighting oriented. And, you know, I grew up in a time when the cinematographers really did oversee the camera department, like you were describing and, and played a role in all the operators being hired and stuff like that. Obviously that's something you enjoy more than anything probably. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know many cinematographers who have come up on the lighting side? Do you think that they're missing out by not being as camera oriented or? No, I, I think uh, I think probably my job is more about lighting and exposure than it is about camera movement. Although I think uh, I think directors have have a bigger uh, say in how we're going to you know how the shot's going to present itself. Do you think Do you think that's changed over the years? Do you think it's? I think it goes from director to director. I think some directors are really strong in camera. Like Kubrick was a you know just he probably. He could have easily been a cinematographer, I think. And uh, and other directors, they, they don't really, uh, like, like especially on sitcoms, they'll, they'll let the camera coordinator block the show, you know, block the cameras. They don't care. Yeah. So it, it just depends. It's a different animal. Have So you've primarily worked multicam. Have you done any other things, any single camera stuff, either, you know, in between projects or before or what? Here, here was my deal. I was a, uh, a multi-camera guy up until... Mark and, I was on Mark and Mindy. I was the fourth camera on Mark and Mindy. When, when I don't know if you read any of the stuff. That was the first show to, to have a steady fourth camera before then, all the other shows. And Happy Days and Laverne and Shirley continued on with three cameras for until the end of their... Wasn't they were it, never... Wasn't it? I feel like, um, you know, the, there's all these sort of urban myths surrounding our industry. I, I think one of them is that Jimmy Burroughs has started with the four cameras on Taxi. Is that ever No. Burroughs was across the street from uh, Mark and Mindy, and he somehow yeah. walked in and saw four cameras and said, I want four cameras. <laughs> and that sounds then, like him, doesn't it? And so it be, everything became four camera after that, you know, oh, until man. except for Newhart. When I did Newhart was the show I moved up to DP on, and he, uh, we had three cameras on that show. I think it was probably one of the last three camera sitcoms. And as a matter of fact, there were two years in the 80s where Newhart and Taxi were the only multi-camera shows on film. People had, had started turning to one-inch, one-inch videotape with those Ikigami cameras. Got to say, I was terrible at that, and I was still an operator in those days. And uh, I ended up doing a lot of single camera. In fact, it was on a series uh, for about five months. And, you know, I, I think when, and when that was over, and it was such a, it was such a crazy time, there was so much uh, cocaine and everything, running everything. It was just like crazy. And uh, I sat on the beach for like six months after that. I, you know, my, I had a girlfriend for the first two weeks and that was, that was over with, you know, <laughs> Saturday morning. And you, by the time you're ready to have some fun, it's time to go to bed and get up early again. You know, So I decided I did not want to be in single camera. I also wanted a life uh, 
some time to spend all yeah. that money. Yeah, it's not to say we don't work some long hours in multi, yeah. but still, it's it's night and day compared right. to the single camera Absolutely. features and dramas. I, I, I'm not disparaging the single camera. Those guys do amazing work, and God bless them, you know, for taking the time to do that. Uh, well, I'd, I'd be the first to say, though, that... Uh, and I've worked both formats. I grew up in single camera originally as a you know as a production coordinator and whatnot. But I'd say we do amazing work in multicam now too because um, even the multicamera shows have developed to such a level where you know and technology's helped push that along a little bit. But I think you know we're lighting shows. It used to be just get it flat, you know, for the most part. You know, you want a nice even lighting scheme for all scenes because you're trying to light for every angle as opposed to all at once as opposed to specific shots. So. I, but I think people are much more nuanced these days, like yourself. I remember Gary Marshall walking onto the set, and he, and he would say, flatter, Nick. I want it flatter. Um, I think you can get in trouble both directions, too. Like, if you go too flat or if you go too modeled, right. um, it's, you know, that's why people like balance. Going back a hair to what you said earlier, you said... um on the film shows for the most part. And then it started switching to videotape and you said that you weren't very good at that. Um, I'm guessing that's a reference to the fact that now on film camera shows, you were on a doll sitting on a dolly with a film camera with a mag and the whole bit, you know, the film mag on top of that. And, uh, and then on videotape shows, you're not, you don't have a dolly grip pushing you in behind and you don't have an, an assistant necessarily pulling focus on your camera while you're focused on operator on operating. Now you're on a pedestal, which is a single, Single, for the most part, anyway, a single-person operation, correct? Correct. I, I remember when the high def started poking its nose in, then we went to these hybrid versions of that where you had an assistant pull in focus while you were doing the ped, and then eventually people got a handle on everything, too. Now it's a mixture. I think just because of COVID, they've tried to make everything as fewer people as possible, and by shooting yeah. it on a pedestal, they accomplished that. Well, that's that's one of those instances where I think technology's really changed the industry in some respects. You know, just even in my own career, I've seen it go from, especially in the multi-camera, mostly film to tape or to digital, now not even tape. And as that technology's improved, you know, the flexibility of it from a lighting perspective as well as just simple numbers sometimes, which isn't always good, you know, because people lose jobs in some cases by losing assistance and camera crew sometimes, but uh, it helps financially. But on the other hand, you know, the technology itself has lent itself to more creativity and and better looking shots with with a dish, different format. Yeah, well, one of the things that you, we never had on the, the film shows, we never had DITs, uh, utilities, um, you know. It offsets to a degree. I think um, that was one of our production arguments at the time was people were saying, well, now we're losing crew people and that's terrible. And it was on the one hand from a personal standpoint. But on the other hand, we were also adding positions. And I think people evolve as well. They're probably camera assistants who moved on to become utility guys. Um, you know, people just change as you need to sometimes. Yes, that's absolutely true. And I think I think it'll continue to change. For sure. This segment is something I like to call the industry term of the week. Each episode will take one everyday production term and define and explain what it is or what it means. This week's term, martini. Though it's really not a technical term, the martini or martini shot has become part of the lexicon of production and is used all over the world. The martini shot refers to the last or final shot of a day's work on set or on location. It's simple, really. At some point, I can imagine an exhausted assistant director turn to their tired and beat-up crew as they set up the last shot of the day, 
said something like, last shot coming up, then it's time for a martini. And knowing crew as I do, I'm certain that they decided in that moment to get a jump on it and simply started calling the last shot of the day the martini shot moving forward. Hearing that the martini shot is next lets everybody know they're almost done for the day and provides both a bit of a lift to the tired group, but also from a practical standpoint lets some departments know that they can start the process of wrapping things up for the night and therefore not extend further into overtime. Another similar term is the Abby Singer shot. The Abby Singer shot is named after the late unit production manager, Abby Singer, who had a habit of calling out this and one more when his shows got to the next to the last shot or setup for the day. Starting out as more of an inside joke among co-workers, people started calling the next to the last shot the Abby Singer shot to go along with the final shot, the martini. And before long, it caught on and has now become a standard term used all over the globe. I never had the opportunity to work directly with Abby, although we did have many mutual friends and met a couple times late in his life. I admired Abby for a lot of reasons, of course because he was an icon of the film and TV industry, but mainly because of his kindness and sense of professionalism. Many years ago, when I was planning to come to LA to set out on my own career in Hollywood, I first mailed out a number of letters to established producers and production managers. Of those 30 or so letters I sent out, I received only two responses. One of those from Abby Singer. Though he couldn't help me out at the time, he still took the time to write back and let me know that, and to wish me luck. That kind of thing tells you a lot about a person, and to this day, as a result, I always respond when somebody reaches out to me looking for work. I can't always help, and sometimes it takes a little time for me to respond, but I do always respond. It's just the way I work, and it's just the way that Abby worked too. I'm so glad that film crews will forever be speaking the name Abby Singer on sets around the world. Hi guys, I'm Sean Mulcahy, the co-host of Dad's Daughters and Dollars. And I'm Caitlin, his daughter, the other co-host. We are the financial podcast for everyone. And we hope you take a listen soon. And now back to Call Time with Bruce Rand Berman. What would you say is the hardest, the most difficult thing about your job these days? It's probably assuaging people that those crappy monitors they're looking at down on the floor are not a representation of what we're doing. Come into my, I always say, come into my room. I've got our dailies right there on a screen and you can see because for whatever reason, you know, they, they take the old monitors and make those the studio monitors for the executive producers. It is not always a good idea. <laughs> I know. I mean, you know what I've gotten into lately? You just buy a nice HD monitor. You put a quad split so you see all four cameras in one big monitor. And that's a decent enough picture. You could even have a 4K picture on that, but it's not going to be perfectly representative of what's coming out of those cameras. And like you referenced, you have a special monitor set up with the split in your little dark room that you sit off to the side at and look at. And and that's a much better look. But yeah, I mean, I and I always try not to bring down the executive producers to look at a set prematurely whether it's not fully dressed or not fully lit because they it gets people all sometimes it worries people because they haven't seen the finished product Mm. before they need to be worried hopefully they won't even be worried just as an aside a thing i know we used to do when we did a lot of pilots i mean i I remember when i used to do four or five pilots every year and uh, i remember we would leave one thing you know that was so out of place that that, <laughs> that that would give the network people something to complain about. We knew it was coming, you know. It was planned. Yes. <laughs> 
And as long as you gave them that, they got their their, their two cents in, and that was fine. <laughs> Usually, it's the sofa. I, I can't tell you how many times we've had discussions, and and you know, plan that yeah. way. Unfortunately, <laughs> um, you pick your battles, and you set up some battles to be able to um, cool. to give in on them easily, <laughs> so that you can move on and keep the things that are most important to you. Right. That's just that's just people management. Uh, which is a big part of every job, and especially at your job too, because you're you're kind of in the middle of a lot of different people, as I alluded to earlier. So you're you have that, um, and following that sort of line of thought. So you manage the lighting side and the grip side, and you have specific people you like to carry along with you from show to show as much as possible. You have oh, sure. a group of people that you've known. Oh yeah, I mean, uh, there's a I could put together a, a whole crew of people I, I really enjoy working with and who are really good at what they do and are fun to work with. That's a, that's such a big part of it. And like you said, you know, the single camera stuff is great. And the, and I have found that the people that are involved in that are fantastic as well. But just from a family, uh, you know, a normalcy life kind of situation, it's so much better in multi-camera. Your hours are much less and you just, you're more local. You're not traveling as much. So you're around your family. Um, what would you say given all the, the difficult stuff that you've dealt with, what would make your job easier? Is there anything in particular you think that hasn't been done that would make it better these days? For hmm. you? What would make my job easier? I, yeah, I, I gotta be honest with you. I, if you love doing something, no matter how hard it is, it's easy. That's true. And uh, for me, that is, uh, I, I, I don't know that it could be any easier. I don't know what that would look like. You know, it's it's not that tough now just because we figured it out. At least for now, we figured out the Sony F55, which is sort of the workhorse for, for all these shows. And and it's a great camera. And and uh, it's very, what's the word, uh, forgiving in a way. And uh, oh, right. that's, a, well, that's another thing that makes my job harder is, you know, the high, the high definition. As soon as you bring that in, whether you're shooting on film or or whatever uh every department is doing feature work it has to be yeah. feature quality because you're going to see every drywall screw every wrinkle you're going to see uh you're just going to see everything you know and so everything has yeah. to be to a higher standard because of the high definition but at the same time that's another example of how technology is catching up with some of that i remember when we started going to the hd that was a huge concern especially with seams and walls and and the makeup and yet as technology caught up a little bit, depth of focus in the cameras got better and you were able to drop off focus, you know, stuff like that, where you had that latitude in film, but didn't necessarily have it in the in the digital or videotape. That came later and that allowed you to hide some of those things, right? Yes, I, I would say so. That's true. Um, my problem with that, and, and this is how I was raised, uh, and, and that was take one has got to be perfect. And that, that's from working with Newhart. Bob would not do take two as long as one of the cameras had it. He said, it's not funny the second time. And, uh, you know, it's hard to argue with a guy who had two, you know, seven-year uh, hits. And so I, one of the things I have done is I've given a little more light, particularly like um, there's a, a show I, I've, I've done um, one day at a time. And from the side cameras, uh, a and X, they are looking a long ways across that living room to the front door. 
And what happens at the front door the first time, I want to get it. I want to make sure we got it. So I've given them a little more F-stop just for that reason, because actors don't always hit their marks and they do things differently sometimes in front of the audience. I remember when I was an operator on on uh, Newhart, Peter Scolari, who's great, and God bless him, he won an Emmy finally, he would always be bigger. He had a lot of physical motion that he would do. And so I would always have uh, Gene Jackson, my, my assistant, set, you know, let's make that five millimeters wider, make all of these five millimeters wider where Peter's at. And it worked because he would fill it. <laughs> no, you have to, you know, I, I think I remember a rule of thumb, like for news reporters, you know, news photographers, actually, they would always use like 28 millimeter lenses because they had to be as wide as possible. Just because, you know, if you're out on the run and in gun in situation, you don't want to miss a shot. Right. And that's exactly what you're describing. Have a wider shot, you know, and a lot of people in single camera, the shots are tight. You're in close in a multi-camera. You have a little more latitude because, again, you're trying to cover a wider space as well. Right. And we tend to shoot more waist up or chest up at minimum. So as you go through your career and you're hunting for jobs and, and periodically, one of the things that we all have come across is downtime. Maybe not as much for you. You've been super busy, but occasionally you run into stuff. Have you, especially when you were younger, did you ever jump out of the camera department and fill the time with other kind of positions, any other jobs, any anything crazy that you had to do to survive? No, no. I, it, once, I, once I got that first job, I stayed busy enough to pay for myself and later on a wife and two daughters. So uh. <laughs> that's, that's a good motivator. Um, to get into your position, would you say that people, I'm, I'm thinking in terms of, uh, you know, people starting out today, uh, as they go through school, you know, in all the different communications programs, and I use the word communications loosely because all the different programs at schools around the country have different names that make sometimes no sense to me. But if you're giving advice to a, a kids starting out in school interested in doing something like cinematography what would you recommend to them is there any particular classes they should take or things they should focus on get it focus on uh or stuff like that is there any type of credentials you want to make sure that the new kids coming up have i think i I think you made this statement earlier how people get to where they got uh is unique for each and every individual and i think I think the, uh, for one thing, I think there's a lot more opportunity. I mean, when I was, when I got hired at, as a camera, my first job as a camera operator, there were three networks. There were probably what, maybe 25 to 30 Emmys a year. Last year, there were almost 500 scripted entries, scripted shows, narratives, 500 there's a lot of opportunity and uh, it would seem to me that, you know, put the, put the reel together and get it out there and uh, learn by doing, because that's, that's really, you know what you don't, I don't know the only time I ever practiced with a whirl head, which with the wheels and I, I put a toilet tube, I, I rented one, I rented a whirl head cause it was, you know, it was only a couple of bucks, you know, in those days. And I brought it home and I sat on a tripod and I sat at the beach and I followed the seagulls around as much as I possibly could looking through that toilet tube, you know, so my, so my hands would get used to, you know, we become second nature, you know, if somebody stands up, I turn it to the right. If somebody goes left, I turn it to clockwise, you know, it's, it's, um, and that was the, the only time I ever 
really could practice. And I took lots of stills. I mean, from the time I was, I could afford a still camera, a nice one, I took just tons and tons of stills. And that taught me about exposure and uh, contrast and, you know, all that stuff. And framing. Framing to me is one of the most important things, because even if you mess up, and this is just my opinion, it means nothing, but um, even if you mess up the shot from a lighting perspective, usually there's usually there's something there. But if you got the framing right, it's salvageable. You know, getting the shot to me is more important than even the lighting to some degree. Yeah. I mean, you know, as long as you can see it, you know, you want to see that expression on the face. If, if it works in a dark, it's too dark, but it, one thing you can't fix is something that's overexposed, you know. Is there anybody that you have over time really admired their work um, watching from outside in? Uh, there's so many. <laughs> you know, and I'm just going to say it. Uh, I admire my, my colleagues, you know, because I know what they're doing. And especially when I see something you know, really interesting and where, where they got to go. Like I think uh, Don got to do uh, some pretty interesting stuff on the ranch. Uh, and, you know, I, I, when I look back at, at old multicam television shows, uh, you know, they worked. They work and they still work. Um, you've had a nice career. Are there any of those shows that you've done that stand out to you that you had the most fun on? Is there anything that uh, any that you'd say sort of define your career more than others? Anything like that? I'm, I'm sure there are exceptions, but if you're working in comedy, most of the time you're going to be laughing. It's going to be funny, if, especially if it's, you know, a successful show. So, yes, to me, the successful shows I've worked on have been, of course, the most fun. Seinfeld, uh, King of Queens, Newhart, uh, Rules of Engagement, One Day at right. a Time. I just got to say it, I, I can't remember all that I've done series-wise, but, you know, I've never really been on a, a really negative experience show other than single camera shows could get be nasty sometimes just because you're behind really? and yeah. uh, you know i part of my part of my internship in the hollywood business was when that one sitcom i got hired on went down it was the the years of dukes of hazard uh smoky and the bandit um all of these car chase shows. So those were pretty weird sometimes. And today they would not be allowed to do what they did. You know, they, OSHA would say, no, no, this is unsafe. <laughs> but there was no safety person in those days. There was no uh, safety uh, guidelines or anything. We were just out there. And and I developed a real respect for the, for the stunt drivers, you know, I mean, because I was sitting there looking through a camera and this car was going to spin out right towards me and stop like three feet in front of the camera. And we didn't have video assist. An oh. operator had to look through the lens to say whether it was good or not. So I had a, you know, a grip on my belt ready to yank me out in case uh, it, they were amazing what they could do, you know, with a car and, and how they could place it at just the right spot. And so I developed a, a lot of respect for those people. I never had any, uh, I never saw anybody get, I was amazed. I never saw anybody get hurt. <laughs> Back in those days, they had these cameras. I know that they used, especially for the stunts. Um, you know, we talk about multiple cameras, multicam uh, 
sitcoms having four cameras these days or three cameras. I mean, even the single camera shows, even with the name, they still use multiple cameras. And even back in the day, they did. Yes. Um, especially on stunts, because you don't want to miss the shot. So they had a camera. I don't even know what it would look like anymore, but it was I think we called them an IMO camera and they were just unmanned cameras. You'd stick out there, like in the place you were sitting, you just described right in the, in the face of a stunt car and it would get that shot without having a person in, in the way. Right. That usually happened when the car was probably going to hit it. You know, I, I just remember doing some, just some crazy stuff. And, but the, the hard part is as a young person coming into the industry, you know, the, the pull is there to make you do I hate to say, you know, stupid and sometimes unsafe things, you know, because you're trying to impress, you're trying to, to get the job, you know, not just this one, but next one. And that's scary a little bit. Yeah, that's a, we got hazard pay, you know, so that was cool. Yeah, but that <laughs> that doesn't, doesn't cover a funeral. <laughs> that's for sure. Things yeah. happen. Hopefully not so much anymore. People are a lot safer, as you as you mentioned, and there's a lot of safety people involved. And well, plus you can see you can actually watch your dailies, you know, in real time of this stunt happening without anybody on the camera, and you know they can they have you know remote control heads now and all kinds of stuff. And there's so much more, and there's yeah, there's so much more, and you know even sometimes you can see the drones are getting shots that cranes could never get before. Right. Yeah, those are some of those drone shots are just amazing. Definitely. But that's something that even on multi-camera shows, I think, you know, the scripts are bigger or they have been. um, They've been bigger and it's more challenging and you go out of doors a lot more than just sitting on a stage. Um, Some of your shows, I remember Seinfeld was one notorious for that. You were constantly outside on the CBS lot. On that show, you had sets layered upon layered on the stage just behind one another. Lighting that must have been incredible. Well, you know what? There was a, a ton of cooperation in the sense that the directors, both Tom and Andy, you know, they were the kind of guys I could say, hey, can I pick where they stand when they come in? Because they each have one line. They built this three-wall set and they have one line and they'd always say, sure, go ahead, you know? And that just took two lights, you know? They'd walk in, say yeah. the line, and leave. So we were... That's true. We had that kind of cooperation. There was there was no way to make that anything more than one guy talking to another, you know. And they, they were they were very. And plus, we we did a lot of the same stuff. Uh, whenever we went to New York Street, you know, a long lens looking straight down the sidewalk. We used those Chapman cranes, you know, on the side and stuff. Everybody's willing to pay for a Chapman crane, but not a Steadicam back right. in those days. Go for Bruce. Some people have asked why I call this segment "Go for Bruce." Well. If I were on set and someone needed to find me or ask a question and called for me over a walkie-talkie or a PL system, that would be my response. It's my way of saying, I'm here, what do you need? And so when listeners submit questions to me, I'm letting you all know that I'm here, ready to respond. These questions can be about anything having to do with the TV and film business, or can be specifically about one of my guests or even about me. There's no question too basic and no such thing as a stupid question. So like I said... Go for Bruce. Our question this week comes from Carol in Bethesda, Maryland. Carol asks, do you have to join or belong to a union to work in the TV and film business? You know, that's a really good question, Carol. People are always wondering about that. And the truth is, many of the folks I bring on call time as guests are in a union or guild. Most of the stagecraft or trade positions on a crew are indeed union jobs. And that covers a lot of departments like grip and electric, hair and makeup, 
property, construction crews, camera and sound, craft service, the art department, set dressing, wardrobe, editors, musicians, studio teachers, script supervisors, and many others. In all of these cases, the employees are all part of their own individual locals based on their job, and all the locals collectively make up the International Association of Theatrical and Stage Employees, or, for short, IATSE, or even shorter, the IA. IATSE is a collective bargaining organization that negotiates the stage employees' minimum wages, their health and medical benefits, and pension and retirement funds. There are other employees not part of the IA that are instead members of guilds, which are also collective bargaining organizations and negotiate contracts every few years for their members. Like IATSE, these guilds negotiate with the studios to set minimum and scale rates, to ensure health and medical insurance, as well as set the terms for pension, retirement funds, and contributions. In addition, these guilds often negotiate rates for residual payments and royalties that the members may be eligible for. The people I'm referring to that are in these guilds are people like writers, who are part of the Writers Guild of America, or the WGA, actors, who are part of the Screen Actors Guild, and the American Federation of Television and Radio Artists, or as it's all known these days, SAG-AFTRA, directors, unit production managers, assistant directors, associate directors, or camera coordinators, are all members of the Directors Guild of America, or DGA. Neither their IATSE nor any of the guilds are really all that instrumental in finding work for their members, although they do provide availability lists to potential employers looking to hire. Also, as we've discussed on the podcast, when the business is busy and there aren't enough available union members to fill all the jobs needed, productions can reach out and hire non-union people who, after working their 30 days, can apply for union membership. There are, as I said, a number of other positions within the television and film industry that are not union or guild positions. Some, like animal trainers or other highly sought-after people who have a rare or very specific skill set, can sometimes be hired as outside independent contractors and therefore not hit the payroll of an otherwise union or guild signatory company. Many other non-union jobs are staff positions. Those are the people working in the production offices, like writer's assistants, production assistants, production secretaries, most producers are not necessarily members of a union or guild in their capacity, although anyone working as a writer-producer, or a hyphenate as it's otherwise called, would indeed have to be a member of the Writers Guild in order to function as a writer on a guild signatory project. There are many non-union, non-guild, non-signatory productions that happen all the time, and as such they allow the hiring of non-union employees in all positions, stage or production office. However, the unions and guilds are always working to organize and force these productions to integrate those employees into the ranks of their union organization and their locals. Not only do they look at this as a way to keep everything much more standardized around the industry, but also more members equals more dues paid to the locals each year, so as they say, money talks. We could talk all day about the benefits and the drawbacks of union and guild membership, but we'll leave that for another time. Suffice it to know that yes, while the television film industry is very union and guild heavy, there are many other ways to find work without being a union or guild member. I hope that clarifies things for you just a bit, Carol. It's a big discussion, but thanks again for the awesome question. If you'd like to submit a question to me at call time, just drop an email to calltimepod at gmail.com. That's calltimepod at gmail.com. Send in your email, tune in to call time, and listen up for your answer. My name is Carlton Ken. I retired as the 16th Sergeant Major of the Marine Corps. I have had the opportunity 
to serve with all services, especially over in combat. And I witnessed the horrors of combat that these men and women go through each and every day. We understand that when you get back here, it's a possibility that you will go through changes. And I just want you to know that you are not alone. You know, the same way that we took care of each other in combat, we have to take care of each other here. And the Simplify Fund and America's Fund is an organization that understand the horrors of combat that you've been through. I ask you to reach out to the Simplify and America's Fund because they have the resources and the capabilities to assist you. I'm just going to ask this question because uh, I always loved this. I would periodically see you in the background on Seinfeld episodes. How many of those would you estimate you were in? I think I was in three total. One where they do the pilot. I was in one where I'm sitting behind Jerry in the coffee ha- in a coffee shop. That's the one that I always remember. Uh, I had a beard then. And, and then uh, there was one where I was a lighting director on a soap opera that uh, Michael uh, Kramer was doing stand-in work on. <laughs> that was such a fun show. I, um, I loved seeing you in the background a couple of those times so much that when we worked on iCarly together, you remember I threw you and we, we did sort of a not-so-loose uh, homage episode. We created a diner very much like the diner in Seinfeld, although not completely like it. And, and then it dawned on me we should stick you in the background in the booth behind the conversation of those actors that made me smile a a great deal was there a moment in your career at any point that you felt like you'd made it like you were established enough was there a moment that you just remember okay i i feel i'm feeling pretty good or or are you just living in fear like most of us no you know i felt that the thing i'm proudest of was becoming was being asked to join the american society of cinematographers at that moment i I figured, okay, if these guys like me, that's, that's who we're shooting for. We're shooting for each other. We're shooting for each other's, uh, the cinematographers, you know, there is, there is a great amount of camaraderie within camera people. There's no doubt. I think it's actually one of the tighter, in some respects, the tighter group of people in our industry out there. I think, I think you're right. Um, do you have any regrets? Is there any career choices you would have done differently now that you, um, didn't make at that time as, as we talked about, Everybody's journey is a little different, sometimes a lot different. You know, you come to crossroads when you had to make a decision between one show or another or, or a career path position or another. Uh, was there any moment or two where you felt if you could go back and change that decision, you would do that? <sighs> I, you know, it happened so long ago, but I'm, I'm thinking that I turned down will and grace for it's like, you know, I think I did. Do you feel like you have any unfinished business? Is there anything uh, that you particularly want to try and accomplish, whether it's working with a specific person or technical challenge you're looking to, to take care of? I think I would like to be around long enough for the next big thing. I, and I don't know what that is. Who knew about digital uh, cinematography? We sort of had an inkling of it. Eastman Kodak had just ignored it, unfortunately for them. I think we have to be very open to new stuff because it's going to happen. It's just going to happen. And they're going to say, here's your equipment. (laughs) Here's your equipment. Here's your crew. You know what I think is going to be, I I would like to try 
would be a uh, uh, virtual reality where you put the glass on. Have you ever done that? You know, I have a little bit. I've seen it actually um, kind of in a couple different ways. I've seen it, number one, being used from a production design standpoint. Because, you know, in the old days of production designers and art directors would create a set model, sometimes out of uh, foam core or paper or cardboard or whatever, so that when they design a set, you'd have the blueprints. But, you know, a lot of people can't look at a blueprint and understand what's right. going on. So they'd create a little model. And, and then later, as cameras got smaller, some people would take a camera and sort of take pictures within the model. So you get a feel for what it's like being in the set. And then... What I've seen more people doing now more recently is they're creating a model in a computer and then you put on the headset, the VR glasses, you know, the headset, and suddenly you're immersed in the set. And you can literally walk around within, you know, a few feet of where you're standing and reach and touch walls and see. It, it's really cool. And then the other way I've seen it, I went to a demo for the stuff they've been doing with the LCD screen, you know, those big panels. They use it on Mandalorian and different types of stuff like that. And I went to a demo of, it was like a three-wall set in this case, although it was actually one, two, three, five, four and a half walls because they had a ceiling over it. Have you ever seen this stuff? It's incredible. No. So it's like the software you've pro I'm sure you've seen it without realizing, but um, you know, it's in some of the science fiction movies, like all the star Wars stuff and Mandalorian on TV, but basically these LCD panels that build up huge walls. And in this case, it was a, a set and they had a top piece and the software that's running it is coming off of these computers. It's sort of like gaming software, but it's so intricate and so developed. You've got three dimensions to it. It's really remarkable. And the lighting is done to a great degree within the panels. So they can isolate, they can light it as if you're hanging lights and you can supplement it with real hanging lights, but they light it from the LCD panels and within the camera, like it's hard, I'm trying to think how to describe it. They can put a little round spot in one and have it light up and they can put diffusion on it and bring it down a little in levels and they can add color to it and whatever and move it all around those panels around the set and change the lighting from one side to the left, you know, onto the other, all within there. And they can move set pieces around that are digital uh, within that. And you could put the VR glasses on and immerse yourself in that environment. And it's all integrated with a real floor in this case which can also be lcd panels i mean you can change the whole world you can literally in 90 seconds they can change over from a scene in a forest to a scene in a city you know just by changing it and the lighting the one it. the one i tr i did it, w it was uh i remember i'm standing there and i'm in a room and i look to my right and there's rami malik sitting on a chair right next to me you know and uh, finally the phone rings he takes the call and and he leaves and then it, we cut and we're in a, uh, we're on the Ferris wheel at the, you know, Santa Monica Pier. You know, we're in We're in one of the cars. We're going around, you know. It was just amazing. Now, of course, I think the challenge there is to somehow get it lit, uh, pleasingly lit somehow, and not see ever see the lights because that's where the real challenge comes. You have to have practicals, I guess. So you guys were completely in a virtual world as opposed to what I was describing, which was more or less a live set with virtual world right. background. Right, right, right. Now, this was a done project, a finished project. And it's probably, you know, I, I, I can't imagine what that equipment looks like, you know, that gets, uh, uh, he wasn't perfectly lit. You know, but he was lit enough to know who it was and and, uh, and so forth. Once we were outdoors, it worked great. 
you know you i mean we've worked i mean just you know one of the things about working at nickelodeon and we did a few things over there over the years together you know one of the things there is that you know kids are the target demo and as a result they need to be entertained a little bit more and so things are more lively in the scripts you know there's a lot more stunts and more effects than your typical multi-camera show aimed at adults so we dealt a lot with the effects type of stuff the green screens the blue screens the pink screens that has all filtered in but yeah the vr stuff that's a whole other world like you i i'm i'm sad that one day and this is just a silly thing but i'm sad that one day i actually have to die because i want to see what's next not just in our, our industry but i want to i want to see those real flying cars or whatever you know right. when when they finally take flight uh but even beyond that i want to see more of that stuff i'm sad that i, I won't see where we end up hopefully it's a good place I guess we'll find out more as we go. Sooner or later, the reality thing, just like everything else, will be affordable to the average schmo, and they'll be turning out all kinds of crazy stuff. And that's true today. I mean, with the, I mean, look, we could pick up our iPhones now and shoot a 4K film if we wanted to. Right. They do advertise heavy on that at times on TV and stuff, but what they don't point out, it's, I think it's there in the small print that they also had a lot of extra gear associated with those shots. You know, they don't just go out there with their phones. Oftentimes they're out there with the lighting package and a rig to hold it and, you know, steady cam like kind of unit. So it's not as easy as they make it seem, but you literally could shoot stuff with your family off your phone and it would be broadcast quality to some level. Yeah. All of this stuff that's untouchable now is, you know, just around the corner. It's going to be, you know, a couple bucks here and a couple bucks there and you're ready to go. Do you think that influx of sort of creativity is good? Do you think that overall helps everybody? I think that's how people, you know, it gets improved by people using it. I think it just like home recording studios, you know, they're doing what a, you know, a probably a half to a million dollar recording studio. You used to need something that much, you know, that costs that much to record now, you know, you can get a pretty good sound. I mean, I've heard some stuff that I'm amazed at that was down in somebody's bedroom. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And filmmaking too. I mean, that's the, you know, it's the same thing. I mean, you can spend as much or as little as you want. If you've got the creativity um, and the know-how, you can pull it off even with, with without having a professional camera package per se, it, you know. It, that's for sure. And it, the biggest problem with that kind of production, whether it be audio or, or audio video, is um, substance. You know, I mean, there used to be uh, the original upload it wasn't youtube i want to say it was ifilm does that make sense hmm. there, there was a one of the original places where you could post your home movie or your homemade movie is how i should put it uh and like uh like most of the music being made in home studios is no one's ever going to listen to it and i don't think anybody would ever really watch these films because they were pretty crappy the ones i saw do you think that's a, do you think that's a viable um way for for people starting out to get seen these days to get in to break in as a cinematographer do you think shooting their own stuff as you know and even if it's on their own gear like that and throwing it on the reel do you think all that helps? yes and uh, here's here's a story a, a buddy of mine who's a cinematographer he went to sc and he met this guy that he became very good friends with and they both graduated at the same time and they rented a stage rented the cameras and stuff this back on film, you know, back when everything was filmed, did a right. car commercial 
Now, the car commercial was an exact replica of a car commercial done for a different car. But the fact that they put their car in there and lit it and shot it and did it all, he told me, he says, we, we, you know, we, we take the reel in and show it to some agency. And he says, oh, you guys did that, huh? <laughs> of course they didn't do it. They did this one. Why, yes, yes, we are. That seems a little disingenuous. <laughs> I wonder if they kept that job once they got it. Do you see many, you know, one thing I was just thinking about, you were saying, there's so many more opportunities out there these days and stuff. You know, uh, do you see a lot more female cinematographers these days than ever before? More than ever before. And I'm, in fact, cinematographers, uh, the, the DNA pool is growing greatly. You know, I think I think that's true. It's not probably growing as fast for, for some people who would like it to see it grow faster. But I think it, there is a – we have panel discussions now – within our local, within the, the local 600, you know, a lot, you know, not just females, but people of color, people of, uh, you know, different backgrounds. And well, like I said, just a lot of different DNA, you know. There's no limit to where you find No, uh -uh. in fact, you're missing out on a lot if you, it, if you exclude people. Exactly. You got to give the opportunities 100%. Um, well, thanks so much for joining me, Wayne. This has been fabulous. I've really had a lot of fun talking. I feel like we could talk for another three hours and just talk yeah. shop. <laughs> it's a shame we have yeah. to finish. But I'll let you go. Really appreciate you coming on Call Time. Well, thanks for having me. Hopefully it's been enlightening for many people as it has been for me. Well, I'm enlightened. Excellent. When I started out in the TV and film business, I wasn't 100% sure what I wanted to do or where I wanted to end up. One of the career paths I considered was in the camera department. But as it goes, at some point, I made a left instead of a right turn and ended up where I did, as a line producer. I have no regrets about the way things turned out, although I still find that I have a great interest in camera work, lighting, and in how new technology is evolving and changing the way cinematographers do their jobs today. Knowing and working with talented people like Wayne Kennan allowed me to continue to grow and learn, which in my job is important, no matter the subject. As far as we've come, there's still so much more on its way, and I, for one, cannot wait to see where things lead. Remember to send in any questions, comments, or suggestions you may have to calltimepod at gmail.com and keep an eye and an ear out for the next installment coming soon to a podcast platform near you. But, most importantly, keep in mind that as much as this is my podcast, it's your call time. Don't be late.